if anybody is wondering why we have less than elegant recording equipment tonight, it's because it turned out that the microphones we were using were not legal. You didn't know about that. And so we stopped using those microphones and we found this old one somewhere. So I hope it's going to serve the purpose until we get the audio system conveniently sorted. And in the talk that I gave a couple of weeks ago, which was titled uh, Applying Skillful Means, I commented towards the end of that talk about the benefit to be found from spending time in the company of those who have walked uh, this way ahead of us and the benefit, in other words, of uh, associating with the wise and like, whatever skillful means we might be applying, we can benefit greatly from the company of those who know more than we do and so that's worth paying attention to. Something else that I, I could have, and I think I, I intended to mention, was the benefit of intentional simplicity. That if we're not careful, we can be caught up in the busyness of life. And we may be exercising very skillful means and with uh, sincere uh, good intention. However, if our lives are too busy, then we just get distracted. And so don't underestimate the benefit of intentional simplicity. Now here I'm, I'm not necessarily advocating uh, super asceticism. Um, there may well be some people around who have the accumulated virtue to live an ascetic life. I, I think, however, those are few and far between. Personally, I, I'm not an ascetic. I, I do live a life of, of some intentional uh, simplicity. However, I'm by no means an ascetic. And, and if, you, if you do have the ability to live according to ascetic principles and without going too weird, well then, that's great. Uh, however, I think we all benefit from a degree of intentional simplicity. Simplicity means that there's a better chance we'll catch the patterns of delusion. You know, the stories that we tell ourselves, kidding ourselves about things, if we're too busy, we end up being distracted and we don't catch the patterns. And so, to add to what I said two weeks ago, I would strongly encourage us all to continue with making an effort to keep life simple. It's a particular sort of effort. And again, we're not necessarily talking about kind of showy ascetic practices, just sleeping regularly, eating regularly, uh, being careful about participating in the consumer culture. You know, I have a, a good dumber friend who has a commitment to avoid ever buying anything new. I don't think his commitment is to never buy anything new because I think when it when it's a matter of getting new glasses, I'm sure he has new glasses and he doesn't get a second-hand pair of spectacles. However, when it comes to when it is clothes and, and cars and, and 
other things. He, he's very disciplined and, and has been for many years and never acquiring anything new and as a particular practice to help keep life simple and, and there's probably other motivations involved as well. And one of the consequences of allowing ourselves to become too busy is that we can end up avoiding dealing with the real issues, uh, the real obstructions. And, and as I was saying, we can be kidding ourselves about things. And this is including uh, getting overly busy in our Buddhist practice. Uh, busy doing this retreat and that retreat and reading this sutta and that sutta and going to visit this monastery and that monastery and not really seeing the restlessness, for instance, as one example. Yeah. Always caught up in bhavatanha, always becoming something more, or trying to get rid of something, we bhavatanha, the craving to become something, the craving to get rid of something. We can feel justified in our craving by calling it a form of Buddhism, if we're not careful. Mm. So remembering the intentional simplicity can help in this regard. And so this also leads us into the theme of this evening's contemplation, which is, is Buddhism a form of escapism? Mm. So my recommendation, if you, anybody ever asks you this question or levels this accusation against Buddhism, my encouragement would be to reply that it's, it's not to do with Buddhism, it's to do with the Buddhist. How we engage the teachings that determines whether it's a form of escapism or not. Like you have a really nice car and you get drunk and get in the car and drive off and have an accident. It's not the car's fault, is it? It's uh, obviously the driver's drunk. And that's what caused the accident. Or the, the power tools we have in our workshop and down the hill there, we have we have rules that nobody uses some of these power tools unless they have the permission of the, the workmaster and his responsibility is to make sure that, that the person using them is properly informed, educated, because these power tools are dangerous. You know, driving a car can be dangerous. Practicing religion can be dangerous. However, if we end up hurting ourselves or hurting others, that's not the fault of the power tool or the car or or in this case, the fault of religion. Mm -hmm. Religion, all true religions, are, are means for helping us do the spiritual work. That's the point of religion, is to help us with the spiritual work. And the spiritual work, what is the spiritual work? The spiritual work is learning how to transform the deluded sense of self into something that is beautiful, something that is truly beneficial for the individual and for the world. And, and people who have done their spiritual work, people who have completed their spiritual work, or are well on the way to having completed their spiritual work, they manifest in the world as wisdom and compassion. That's the job of true religion. And In considering these matters, I would say it's helpful to reflect on 
how consciousness manifests in different beings. It seems to be peculiar to human beings that this sense of self manifests. Certainly in other animals it seems unlikely that they have a sense of self. Not anything as precisely formed as we human beings have. And it's not there when we're born, the sense of self. You, know, you look at children, this is something we've spoken about many times before. You look at children, they, there isn't this individual sense of self. It takes between two and seven years for this individual sense of self to manifest. And by about the age of seven onwards, you can start to have reasonable conversations with this little person. And then they need religion to protect them against the worst excesses of the sense of self. And you know what children around the age of seven, eight, nine, ten can be like. They can be really irritating little brats. Why? Not because they're inherently bad, it's just because they're intoxicated with this dynamic, this phenomenon, this I that they've discovered. And, and it's powerful. And, they start demanding things and arguing about things. And where did all that come from? This, this is to do with the sense of self. And, and religion is a set of tools to help us navigate our way through, around, with, engage with. And as I was saying, ultimately to transform the sense of self into something truly suitable, something truly beautiful. So this sense of self from the apparent level, when we look at the sense of I, it does appear substantial. It can appear stable and secure. And indeed it is substantial and the sense of self is substantial in as much as it has there's consequences to it however to say that it's stable and secure and then to to make it the source of our identity that's really risky because in fact in truth in actuality the sense of self is a dynamic process and all of us will be aware there's, there's this I that feels happy and when we're really happy it feels like it's going to be that way forever and yet sometimes when we're unhappy that can feel like it's going to be that way forever it's like when we get lost in, in sadness or get lost in rage it can feel like eternal hell they're never going to be happy ever again that's depression I can feel that way. So which self is it? Is it the happy self? Is it the angry self? Is it the sad self? Is it the despairing self? There's really a community of selves arising and ceasing in consciousness. And to assume that there's one single substantial self, that's a, it's an understandable assumption. However, it's, a, it's an understandable mistake. And the image that I've often suggested and I find helpful is to consider the self as like a rainbow. That if you don't understand the nature of the rainbow, if you don't understand the actuality of the rainbow, you can go running after it expecting to find a pot of gold. The truth of a rainbow is that it's the refraction of light through water particles and it just looks like this. 
It's beautiful. However, it's not a solid, substantial, secure thing. It's a dynamic. And, and likewise, the sense of self is a complex of mental, emotional processes that if, we're, if our sense of self is not rightly aligned, rightly informed, as again we've spoken about before in the Mahamangala Sutta, Atta Samapaniti oneself rightly aligned. If the self is not rightly aligned, and here we're talking, remember we're talking about the conventional sense of self, personality, if this structure, this process that we refer to as myself is not rightly aligned, then it gets up to all sorts of mischief and confusion. And in fact, this is where what in Buddhism we refer to as the the three poisons manifest, greed, hatred, and delusion. So using these teachings, applying these teachings that we've received in a skillful way so as to transform this deluded, uninformed, misaligned sense of self into something that is truly human, truly suitable, truly beneficial, and Different religions apply, apply different systems, different techniques. And for instance, uh, the theistic religions, they apply uh, anthropomorphism and, and with the primary tool of devotional practices, generally speaking. And there are, of course, contemplative traditions of the, within the theistic schools. Uh, however, generally speaking, most of them are are more of what's referred to as the, the cataphatic or the affirming traditions and, and they use the primary tool of devotion and, and hence the singing of hymns and, O thou that changest not abide with me and, and these hymns that are used to work on this deluded sense of self well in Buddhism yes there's, there's devotion there However, the primary tool within Buddhism, as we would all know, is wisdom. And with the support of the other essential elements of, of sila and samadhi. So these three elements, sila, samadhi, panya, commitment to the training and integrity, a commitment to the training to collectiveness, a tr- commitment to the training and discernment, primary tools that we use for investigating this apparent reality which we call I, which we call self. And it's not just a concept. Let's remember that in investigating this, we're not just performing a mental exercise. This sense of I has got lots of energy. And, and if it's not tamed, if it's not trained, if it's not rightly aligned, it can end up very, very tangled and confused. Mm. Whether or not Buddhism is a form of escapism is determined by how we apply these teachings, like the teachings of sila, uh, the cultivation of integrity. If these teachings on sila are picked up and applied in a, in a skillful, mature way, then they lead to groundedness, mm. You see the image of the Buddha sitting on the lotus. The lotus is the foundation of the aspiration for liberation for the Buddha. The lotus is 
the symbol for sila or moral integrity. And this, this beautiful expression that rises up out of the filth of the swamp. And this is the foundation and a life committed to cultivating integrity gives groundedness and also gives a, a freedom from remorse. You know, perhaps you're aware of that discourse where the Venerable Ananda was asking the Buddha about the point of sila and the Buddha's reply was, it leads to freedom from remorse. So, stability, freedom from remorse, agility, if there's, if there's freedom from remorse, then there's a chance that you're going to be able to trust yourself, you're going to feel okay with yourself. It's like walking around with yourself, it's like walking around with a good friend. So there's agility and then the ability to accord with the vicissitudes of life. If the practice of sila is, is engaged as a form of escapism, then you can just be applying the forms of like keeping the precepts and at the same time becoming particularly conceited and looking down on other people. You know, just paying attention to the form, how many precepts are we keeping and, and trying too hard to be good. This idea of becoming good as an end in itself. It's certainly important to to train ourselves in body, speech and mind so that our hearts and minds are, are free from remorse and and free from despair to the degree that we can. That's that's an important training. However, becoming good and and being once removed from ourselves and looking at ourselves and judging ourselves and uh, am I am I a good person? Am I, am I as good as them? Am I as good as I should be? That's misusing the teachings on sila. And it's, it depends on how we how we pick up the teachings and. There's a, a chant that we, we do regularly in the monastery at the end of our recitation of the training rules, which has this little stanza in there that says, this training, if it's picked up in the wrong way, will cut your hand like grasping kusa grass. Now, I don't actually know what kusa grass is. I imagine it's some sort of a, a hard reed that they have in India, which has got very sharp edges to it. And if you pick it up you, in the wrong way, you can cut your hand. And uh, so this training, the, even the Patimoka rule the, that the, the Bhikkhu Sangha is supposed to be living by, if it's picked up in the wrong way, we can hurt ourselves. And likewise, uh, the training in Sila in general, if we're picking it up in the wrong way, we're just looking at the form and busy trying to become good. And I becoming good is misusing the teachings. Uh, yes, we learn from our commitment to keep the precepts to watch our intention is one of the great benefits of making a commitment to observing sila as you're there to watch what was my intention i just squashed a snail and then get all upset because we squashed a snail did i mean to squash that snail well if we didn't mean to squash the snail then there's not the comer of killing there may be the comer of of not being more mindful, but that's different from the intentional comer of killing. So the observing the precepts so that it contributes to mental clarity, to groundedness, to freedom from remorse, to agility. That's what the teachings are intended for. And, and with the teachings on samadhi, and if we pick them up in a 
in a mature, skillful way, then these teachings on cultivating collectedness or samadhi can contribute to stability, to contentment, to ease, to balance. If we discover these meditation techniques, uh, concentrating on the end of your nose and watching the breath, and, and instead of following the Buddha's encouragements to be mindful, instead we're just exercising concentration, concentrate, 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 exclude, 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 focus, 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 and got it. Peaceful again, thank goodness. Goodbye, cruel world. Wish I could meditate more, I hate the world. Meditate less would be much better. If you remember the Buddha's teachings on the Eightfold Path, Samma Samadhi is at the end of the list of the eight factors. The first is right view or right beliefs, and then right activation or right attitude, and then right speech and right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and then right Samadhi. And it's understandable that when we receive these teachings on developing collectiveness, tranquility and of mind, and we apply a little effort and maybe we have some pleasurable results and that we're drawn to that. However, let's remember the whole of the teachings. Starting with, for instance, the, the right view or right belief, which includes an understanding of the Four Noble Truths, which essentially is that we are the agents of our suffering the first noble truth and the second noble truth. And do we really know that? Do we have that belief? Or are we blaming our parents for the way they brought us up or for the, the politicians or our astrological configuration or whatever else? We're blaming something for our suffering. This spiritual training involves beginning with right view, right belief really, including really looking at how we view suffering and reconfiguring, rewiring in effect our perceptions so that we stop viewing suffering as an indictment and see it as a teaching. Oh right, this, this heart pain that I'm suffering right now is a result of the way I'm relating to experience. The Buddha had all sorts of difficulties. The great beings, you read the life story of Ajahn Chah and see the trials and tribulations that he went through. And, mm -hmm. and the Buddha himself, he was, a, he was accused of all sorts of unpleasant things. People tried, tried to kill him. And, however, the Buddha never suffered. Why not? Because he had right view. He had, his relationship to experience was not characterized by clinging. The Buddha had no craving. He had desires. However, the way the Buddha had desires meant there was no clinging. And if he didn't get the object of his desires, it was equanimity. Which is very different from how we have desires. So our relationship to the training in collectiveness or training in samadhi, although we might find it very tempting to get away from the pain of life, the, the frustrations of, of human existence, it's a form of escapism to just cling at our meditation techniques and meditate, meditate, meditate. Sometimes we need to slow down and 
most of us need to slow down most of the time and be more cautious, be more careful. Look at the beliefs that we have. Look at how we approach life. Listen to how we speak. Be careful how we act. Basically all the eightfold, eight factors of the eightfold path can be supporting the practice and, and right samadhi. So there's a skillful, mature way of picking up the training and collectedness or training and samadhi, or there's the immature way of doing it, which is in fact actually quietly described as a, a form of escapism. Just concentrate our attention and exclude all the things we don't like until we drop into, possibly, if you have the skill, drop into some state of tranquility. It may be in the process of avoiding a lot of very important lessons that we really need to be learning. And sometimes what we need to do is slow down and come back and pay more attention to the feeling of life suffering instead of running away from it. So if we're using our samadhi practice to get away from life, then that might be more accurately described as vipava tanha, the craving to get rid of what we don't like and we don't find agreeable. However, it's not the problem with samadhi. It's not the problem with with sila. The problem is created by how we pick up these teachings. And similarly, of course, with panya, or discernment. If we engage the Buddha's teachings in a skillful careful way, then we learn how to ask the right kind of questions at the right time in the right way. If we pick it up and pick these teachings up in a heedless, uh, uninspected, reactive way, compulsive way, then it's just another form of control freakery. Trying to control, trying to understand everything understand everything, reading more books, getting more information. And the, so I'm very grateful for Ajahn Chah's encouragement to stop reading books. And at one stage he says, the reason you guys don't know anything is because you know so much. You know so much about things that you don't know anything directly. And so yes, of course he encourages to read the books of discipline and 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 so on. And it's not an absolute position. It's not saying never read. It's a, it's a guiding principle. Always turning to information to appease our mental greed so we can feel sure again. There's no end to that. It's like if you've got a wound and it's healing. Of course it feels itchy. Of course you want to scratch it. Is that intelligent to scratch it? Obviously not. You've got to inhibit. We've got to likewise the, the inclination to ask questions reactively What's going on here? Am I doing the right practice? Well, we can be asking that question in a mature way, or we can ask that question in a compulsive, immature, unhelpful way, following our habits to escape into conceptual certainty. I know what I'm doing because I've got information about the subject. The teachings on Panya are aimed at at, at showing you how to be able to live with not knowing, with feeling uncertain and still be okay. And can you feel uncertain? 
like can we look at this crazy world that we live in that really is obviously uncertain can we feel steady as we take in all this information sometimes it might mean don't take in so much information that might be a wise thing to do could also mean take in the information and feel uncertain really feel uncertain and feel how it feels to feel uncertain rather than trying to get more information about how can we solve this problem of the world and that's is that you know all these clever people thinking about solving the problems of the world I suspect that's contributed to a lot of the problems of the world mm. so the question am I practicing rightly well can we ask that question in the right way at the right time so that it leads us to a place of inner strength like asking that question in a feeling way not just in our heads mm. asking our hearts asking asking our elbow mm. Mm. asking your foot like asking the whole person mm. waiting in silence for what it feels like when we ask that question I don't know if I'm practicing right I've got to be practicing right I don't want to waste my whole life practicing wrongly and what's that? but sometimes we just don't understand things and, and the humility, the modesty the ability to bear with feeling uncertain you know, we're contained, our practice is contained hopefully within the commitment to the cultivation of integrity and then we just wait so whether Buddhism is a form of escapism or not as I said in the beginning it depends on on the Buddhist not Buddhism and, and how we pick up these teachings And I consider in Buddhist teachings that it's like it's a form of nourishment if we're applying ourselves to these teachings in a skillful way then, then the heart feels nourished as with food, mm -hmm. you can eat food for the sake of nourishment or you can eat it for entertainment or you can eat it just for distraction mm. just eating food that's full of sugar, salt and fat because it makes us feel good well that's misusing food but that's not the problem with the food that's the, the way we approach it so thank you very much this evening for your attention.